0: Good morning, and welcome everyone. You know, I was reminded in praise and worship today that when I was about 10 years old, I was in a service, and there was a time of praise that people just started really just going after God, and I was just a young kid, and the arms were above me, and I had this moment where I was just very much aware that God had come in the room. At that point, I ran to the altar. Nobody else was running to the altar. But as a kid, I knew God was in the place. And he, it wasn't the point that I gave my life to Christ. It was part of the journey. But you never know what can happen when we come together to lift up the name of Jesus. Because he says he inhabits the praises of his people. So for those of you parents who maybe have trouble Sunday mornings getting your kids to church, do it. Do it. You don't know what's going to happen on Sundays. You don't know what seed gets planted in your kids on Sunday. Because his presence comes and it sets something different in the heart. So, along with that story, I guess I should finish it up. One of the reasons I, I, I was affected possibly was because people were praying for our family because my brother was about ready to die. He literally was on death door. Um, and as a young kid, I didn't want to lose my, my older brother. And so I ran to the altar in the middle of it, just weeping. And the Spirit of the Lord came, and my brother was healed. Yeah, doctor said to him later, I've lost better patients than you. And he shook his head, didn't know how he made it through, but he did. Thank God. All right, today I have a sermon for you, and I titled it, first of all, I was going to call it, I Know Two Things. But then my friends I know in this congregation would say, that's about the extent of it too. <laughs> so I've changed the name a little bit. <laughs> um, and it comes from a quote by a na- man named John Newton. Some of you know John Newton, you don't maybe know exactly what he's famous for, Um, but along with John Newton's life, I want to talk about the prodigal son, because there's a quote he gave that stirs within me, and uh, in reading the prodigal son recently, I was struck again by this amazing parable that has affected men and women throughout the ages. St. Augustine writes about it, 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 it's like, it was a major uh, thing in his life that, to be on the road with Jesus, that our hearts are never at rest until we're at rest with Jesus, that we spend our lives on the road, but we come and we rest with Jesus. We come home to him. And so this prodigal son has been quoted by um, politicians, men and women, actors, singers. They write about this this parable because it's so impactful. And once again, it stirred my heart, so I want to share that with you today. But John Newton was an Englishman a lot of great English men and women, who was born in 1725. When he was grown, he became a captain of a ship, and he was involved in at least three trips across the Atlantic, taking slaves from Sierra Leone to the Americas. He witnessed the horrors and participated in the horrors of the slave trade. Later, he became a surveyor of the tide, which is a title I'd never heard of before, but in Liverpool, he worked at the docks there, and he once again saw the horrors of the slave trade. At the age of 23, he became an evangelical Christian. He'd actually even heard the preaching of John Whitfield. At age 48, 25 years later, he penned these famous words Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. John Newton, the slave trader, repented and not only became a curate in Olney, which is just north of London, but later became the vicar of St. Mary's, right in the heart of London. Still standing here in London, okay? He actually grew up in Red Lion Street, okay? But this is a church that he became, um, I forget his exact title there, but he was, he was installed there. And it's also the place where William Wilberforce, Force worshipped. Okay? It's still in London. You can go see it today. Um, but he penned these words, Amazing Grace. But he penned many other words, too. He was very influential in his day. And a very humble man because of the, the actions he'd been involved in in his youth. At the age of 63, he wrote a pamphlet that had a great impact on the government. Where he recounted the horrors of both the horrors that he participated in and witnessed. The pamphlet was called The Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade. And in the introduction of this book, he even states that this is like a public confession, that this is just airing it out, this vicar of renown is saying, this is what I was at. I'm not hiding my past, but I want this to make a change. I want this slave trade to end. The British Library surmised this in, in its impact by stating, In in his pamphlet, Newton wrote harrowing descriptions of conditions on slave ships, including the brutality of the treatment inflicted on enslaved Africans transported to the Americas. His account supported abolitionist arguments that by its nature, the trade inculcated violence and inhumanity and debased all involved, including British sailors." His testimony, his witness, was brought before every MP in government. Pamphlets by him were produced so that they would know his first-hand account of what he was a part of and what he abhorred. Newton later stated, it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. He felt horrible about what had taken place and what he would participated in. But this is a quote that stirs within me. It's not part of the Amazing Grace song, but it certainly is the same vein of thought. He said this in his older years. Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. I'll read that again. I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. I think what's profound here, or one of the profound natures of things within this quote is he doesn't say i am a great sinner but christ is a great savior he doesn't say i'm a great sinner however christ is a great savior he's holding both of them up at the same time i'm great sinner and christ is a great savior why this stirs in me Is because in my walk with God, and I think this has implication for us as we relate to God, as we come to him, as we pour out our hearts before him, as we deal with the struggles of life and the things that come against us, the accusations the enemy throws at us, our own weaknesses and failures, is that there are times that we are terribly aware of our sinfulness before God. The ringing words in the Old Testament that call it rebellion, adultery, spiritual idolatry, casting the Lord behind our backs. The reality of sin just is so great it can be almost overwhelming and yet true at the same time. And the Lord sometimes leads us into those places where it's really lifted high. And then at other times, he kindly makes the para- panorama of our vision completely about Christ, the greatness of his salvation, the kindness of his love, his mercy that is without end, his mercy that the Scripture says new every morning. And we look no further than the cross, that Jesus died with the knowledge that he was dying for us, that he went through that for us to pay for our sins. But we have these two things. And over the years I've seen if in the long haul, I diminish one, it affects the other. It brings the other down too. Because he has completely saved me. I am, as John Newton wrote, wretched. Do you know there's people who actually wanted to rewrite that because they didn't want to feel wretched. They thought it was inappropriate. Like just, And that's our day and age. We don't want to own that we live apart from God so frequently. He's made the earth. He's made us. He's got a plan for us. And yet, we choose to go our own way. We live separate from him. And yet again, when we hold up sin, as wicked as it is, the rejecting of God in his position, his rightful position, and then we acknowledge that Jesus died even for the wickedness that would turn our backs on him, we exalt Christ up. And the two can be held up. We don't have to hide our sin. We don't have to pretend we're better than everybody else who hasn't repented. We have to own that we are just the same apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we can do no good thing. And to own both is the balance I believe we need. And I think John Newton had that. We can sometimes so focus on the grace and goodness of God. And if we just listen to messages and we just don't pray and we don't connect with God, we can literally come to a place where we treat sin like, okay, Jesus took care of it. Eh." And yet the scripture says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. That's not Old Testament, that's New Testament. That's James confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. It's a sickness you can't ignore. You don't want to treat it as less than what it is. And we can lower it. That's one of the dangers I see in the church today that grace is exalted so highly that people don't treat sin like it should be treated. I need to confess this. Not that God wants to hold it over my head. He wants me healed. He wants good. We can't ignore the seriousness of sin. And that brings us to the parable of the lost son or the parable of the prodigal son, one of the most astounding parables. It should shock us, as it did the people in the day, I've, I've read that this was utterly shocking. Luke chapter 15, verse 11, and I'm just going to read up to 24. Jesus continued. Let me preface this. The beginning of this chapter begins with Jesus being criticized because he dines with sinners, and he'll be with them. Like he's being attacked for this, that he has compassion on those who are... um, outside the graces of the religious institutions of that day. He's hanging out with people who are just outside, outsiders. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had he collects it, and he sets off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a far way off, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, and is found, so they began to celebrate. In your church years, if you've been in church a while, you've probably heard this talked about before. But let's consider for a moment the horror of the youngest son's request. By saying, I want my share of this state, he's saying, I don't really care about you. I really don't even mind if you die. Because you don't get an inheritance. You don't get your part of the estate until the parents pass away, right? So he's really saying, I just want the money you've got. I just want the blessing that's mine. And I don't care about you at all. In some degree, maybe as far as, I just wish you were dead. Then let's consider the father's response. The father has been... Treated badly. Rejected. Think of this as a parent today. Think of it. That your son or daughter doesn't call you. Doesn't honor you. Doesn't respect you. Wishes that you were not in their life. And that is the sin of the prodigal son. He says, I'm going my own way. I'm doing life without you. I'm going to do life By my own way, Father, I'm setting you aside. But the Father, in spite of that, runs to embrace him. Gets sandals, throws a party, and embraces him. And this is the part that just recently stirred in me. I was reading a book, and they made mention of this, and I'd never caught it before. Let's consider for a moment the son's repentance. In our mind, I think over the years, I thought, the son is, I love you, Dad. I'm so sorry I was away. I should have never done it. That's not the story. The story is a shallow, empty repentance that has none of the meat that we think he should have. It simply is a man looking at a pig trough, saying, Forgive me if I offend you, but in reality, it's life sucks. I could do better somewhere else. Everything I've chased is empty and meaningless. This stinks. My father's got something better. It's not, I love my dad. It's not, oh, I miss my dad. He comes home looking for a meal and a job. Painful. Parents. Can you imagine receiving a son or daughter back home like that? There's nothing in here that says, Dad, I love you. I'm so sorry. Well, he did say sorry. I've sinned against heaven and against you. But there's none. Dad, I really love you. It's not there. And yet... This sinfulness, this unability to see the love of his father still, only magnifies the tremendous love of the father. He doesn't stop the party. He doesn't stop from embracing him, even though the repentance is so low. Years ago, I was at a, a conference. It was a retreat. And there was a teaching on idols, idols of our heart. And a, and a hardworking businessman came up to me and he said, You know, I just have to say this. I was praying, and I said, God, is my boat my idol? Is my boat my idol? He was very wealthy, he was very well off, hard worker. And he said, I was praying. God, have my heart. Is my boat my idol? And he said to me, no, your job is. And the man was stunned. He was stunned that the Lord would call out his job. A job is a blessing. A job is a good thing. And if you knew the man, he, he got a lot of who he was from his job, his, his value, his worth. His, and he worked hard many, many hours. And the Lord was saying that this good blessing that I've given you has become an idol. Essentially, you've left me behind, and you've gone after my blessings. And your heart's been satisfied with the blessings, but not me. Today, you may be a person loved by God, loved deeply by God, minutes away from another embrace of his. So close to be wrapped up in his love. But maybe social media has wrapped your heart. The blessing of staying connected with others. Maybe that's what satisfies the deep urges in your life. And it's not connecting with God. Maybe it's the blessing of being able to go out and shop for something. Maybe you're shopping for more than what you need. But you shop to find value like power and ability to buy something nice and feel good about yourself because you can get something nice. Maybe it's work, like my friend. Maybe your life is so involved in work that in some ways you've left the Father behind and you're getting all your value and worth from your job. Maybe it's even learning. Maybe you love books so much. We're all susceptible to taking the blessings of God and making them an idol, and we're leaving, in a sense, the Father behind. It could be gaming, okay? Maybe you love winning. I've got nephews who love to get online and play battles and games and stuff, and they lose hours in it. And their life is entirely void of the relationship with God. All these things and more can become idols. They're, they can be blessings, gifts from God. But they can become idols to our hearts if we begin to take these blessings in as the as substance of our life, the thing we live for, to wake for. But blessings will never, ever fully satisfy. At some point, if it's crafting, why make another quilt? Why make another thing? It becomes empty. Your job can become empty. You can have moments of despair like chasing after a life in pubs or whatever. Your life, you have these gracious moments, these graciously painful moments where you say, maybe not to this degree, but this sucks. This really isn't satisfying. My father has something more. I don't have this in my notes, but there's a verse in Isaiah... That, that has always disturbed and bothered and kind of also challenged me to pray for people. Because there's so many people who can't pray for themselves. There's so many people who can't cry out to God for themselves because they don't have any ability or knowledge even to do it. But there's a place in there where Isaiah is talking to the people of Israel and they've been in sin so long. He says they've become weary in their sin But then they strengthen themselves and do it again. They pick themselves back up. And I pray, God, in those weak moments, God, don't let them strengthen themselves in it. God, let them taste the emptiness of that choice. Let them taste the emptiness of that way. God, let it lead them to you. Don't let them just go through another cycle of one year, two years, five years, of seeking after something until they come to that place again where it's empty. It's not fully satisfying. Just like the prodigal son, God has something better for all of you. But we do have to come to him. And your repentance doesn't have to be overwhelming with emotion. If you just come to the point where you say, there's a bit of that that's true. I won't own all of what what William said today. I'm not that bad, maybe you're saying. But there is an emptiness. I am pursuing things. I'm going after things. And I'm leaving God behind sometimes. He's not the center of my heart. He's not the one who who I long for. And the Father will accept it. The Father accepts empty, hollow repentance that we as parents would never, ever accept because His love is so higher and greater than ours. Maybe it's because He knows We won't feel the love back until he loves us first. Maybe he knows that he has to bring us close before the emotions of appreciation and gratitude will begin to flow again. But it's in his embrace that the real blessings come. It's in his embrace and being close to him that you begin to taste what life is all about. And that's why John Newton could write Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, how great is my salvation. How great is the love of the Father that saved a wretch like me. He's holding it both. We don't have to pretend we're perfect. We don't have to pretend that every, every day is going to be great, that we're perfect and we're, we're always seeking God. We don't have to play that game. We don't have to compare ourselves with others and say, well, I'm not at least like them. No. They're all traps of the enemy. The scriptures warn us of comparing ourselves to one another. Run to the Father, even if there's no emotion. God, I want to be closer to you. God, I desire to be closer to you. Interestingly, the history of Amazing Grace was written in the town of Olney, just north of London, where he was a curate. And it was a sermon. This was meant to accompany a sermon that was based on First Chronicles 17, 16 through 17. But I'll just tell you the context of it. David has come into the kingdom and the Lord begins to make covenant with him. Covenant is no small thing in that culture in that time. It's basically saying we're partnering together we're together in this not a contract we're together we're binding ourselves together God Almighty was binding himself to David and saying David your family line will forever be on the throne there will always be a king and he just speaks blessing over over David and David is dumbstruck David says words like is this your normal way with people is this really who you are that you would pour out so much blessing upon me, just me, who am I, and who's my Father's house, that you would speak such words over me. I tell you, Jesus speaks words over you. My beloved, my son, my daughter, come near. Come near with any type of repentance you can offer, any thought that you want to be closer, and I will bring you in. I have a covenant of love to pour over you. I will partner with you. I will be yours and you will be mine. I can wash away the past and make you new. The same covenant, a better covenant, Jesus is offering to you. For whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord, whosoever is you, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved i encourage you in this song to lift up the name of jesus and acknowledge any shortcomings and let's see what god does thank you for listening to this message from bromley town church you are always welcome to visit us on a sunday morning or join us again for more messages here online you can also stay connected with us at www.bromleytownchurch.com